Well, for those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace or visiting today, we are presently in a series called The Dearest Place on Earth. It comes from Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my theological heroes, who once just talked about church life, and he said, you know what, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if there was, if I joined it, it wouldn't be perfect anymore. But imperfect though it is, it's the dearest place on earth to us. And here at Sovereign Grace, if you are visiting, by God's grace, that's how we feel about this local church. It is the dearest place on earth. And today, with it being Brendan's ordination, I've decided to give a message called Leadership and the Dearest Place on Earth. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be giving attention to just one verse. But it is a verse that I think is, well, culturally challenging and yet divinely inspired. So what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to pray. And we'll start to get into it together. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you that as we study your word, there's no area of our lives or ministry that remains a mystery to us. Lord, this isn't a mystery. This is very clear. So Lord, would you help me to describe what the author is saying here? Would you help us to listen and respond so that you may be glorified and so that the dearest place on earth may be built? Have your way amongst us, Lord, by your grace. Amen. I remember a number of years ago when I still lived in the UK, I went out for a haircut, as you do now and again, and the ladies in, in the UK anyway, the lady hairdressers, they want to talk like all the way through when you're having your hair cut, which is really difficult because as a guy, you've got like, you know, the razor thing going up your head and you're like, Zzz, and you're like, what? I can barely hear a word you're saying. But anyway, she's chatting away, she's chatting away. And then eventually said to me, so, so what do you do for a living? And you know what's coming. So I said, oh, um, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, we had one of them come around our house once. Yeah, yeah, he did the swirly bits on the ceilings and he did nice flat walls. I said, no, no, that's a plasterer. I'm a pastor. I work for the church. And she was like, oh, oh, oh. Because <laughs> in the UK, if you say you're a pastor, people think, oh, couldn't get a proper job. You know, that's the way people think about pastors. I remember then when I moved to Australia, I was at somebody's wedding. And I was chatting to one of the guys, I'd just done the service, and one of the groomsmen came to me and he said, oh, that was a lovely service, I really enjoyed that, and I just thought you spoke so well. And he said, so you're a pastor? I said, yes, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, that's amazing. So obviously you work on Sundays, and, but what do you do for the rest of the week? <laughs> and I just sort of paused, I thought he was joking, and he said, no, no, seriously, are you like just part-time? Or I'm like, no, no, I'm very much full-time, very much full-time as a pastor, 
Um, in fact, actually, I said, actually, I'm full-time, and then there's another guy who's full-time, and then there's another guy who's part-time, and we're all doing pastoral ministry. And he just looked at me blank. And I knew what was coming, and he said it. He said, so what on earth do you do with your time? See, the truth is, I think a lot of people think like that. They have no clue what pastors do with their time. I think many non-Christians look confused when you say that you're full-time. The truth is, I think many Christians look confused. Wondering, what do you actually do? I mean, I know you preach, so that probably takes, what, 20, 30 minutes before you get up there and talk? What do you do for the rest of the time? I think many people like that think like that. But the truth is, my friends, in Scripture... We not only find out some very clear and specific roles laid out for pastors. In this scripture, we not only figure out what the Lord has genuinely called pastors to do with their time, what their roles and responsibilities actually are. More even than that, what we discover in scripture is that pastors will one day give an account to the Lord for what they do. And as a pastor, I want to let you know That is a very, very sobering reality. Look again. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, listen, as those who will have to give an account. That's massive. See, I'm no different to you guys. I'm going to stand before the Lord on that last day, and I'm going to approach the throne... And I'm sure in that moment, all of us, our knees will be knocking somewhat, won't they? And I'm going to stand before the king in very unfamiliar surroundings. The the great holy one of Israel will be before me. And I'm going to give an account to God for my life. I'm going to give an account to him for how I've sought to lead my family. And then I'm going to give an account to God for how I've led you. How I've pastored you. How I've done what God has called me to do. And set me aside to do for his glory. So many people haven't got a clue what pastors do. But I think we not only need to be informed about what pastors do. We need to be aware that they will give an account to God for what they do. So this morning I want us to do three things with the remainder of our time this morning. I want to, first of all, examine the question, what is it then that pastors will give an account to God for? What is it in the Bible that they are called to do and will then give an account to God for in their lives? Secondarily then, I want us to examine how then should we respond to our pastors? If this is true but we define, how, how are we as a congregation meant to respond to them for God's glory? And then number three, I want just to ordain Brendan Willis. You can go woo there, that's that's good. I want us to ordain him, but I want us to ordain him, I trust by that point, theologically informed as to what we're doing. So that we can really get behind him and support him. So we know what he's signing up for. And so that you know what you're signing up for in him becoming a pastor today. So let's start at the beginning. Number one, what is it? The pastors will give an account to God for. Well, to answer that question, we have to go to Scripture, don't we? We have to open our Bibles. Jeff Perswell, the dean of the Sovereign Grace Pastors College, says it this way, I think so helpfully. 
He says, It is increasingly popular for pastoral ministry to be pragmatically defined or culturally conditioned rather than scripturally determined. Yet when this occurs, the role of the pastor is distorted, the effectiveness of the pastor is diminished, and the health of the church is weakened. Oh, how well said that is. It's so important that in our day and age where we can be tempted to pull pastoral ministry into whatever works pragmatically, whatever we want in our culture, but we must be biblically driven in all our things, and if we are not, when it comes to the role of a pastor, his role will be distorted, his effectiveness will be diminished, and the health of the church will be weakened. And not only that, we are setting this guy up to give his life to something that we've pragmatically determined or culturally conditioned rather than what God has called him to, which is what he will give an account to God for on that day. Pastors are going to give an account for what God's called them to, not what we think they should be called to. And so we have to be biblically driven. We have to examine God's word, understanding that God directly is their boss. So we have to be biblically driven. And so what is it that pastors are called to? And more specifically, what is it that pastors will give an account to God for? Well, there's five things, which I think is encouraging for you, discouraging for us that are pastors. Five things that we are going to give an account to God for. And here's the first. Number one, pastors will give an account to God for, number one, how they led the church. When they stand before him on that day, they will give an account for how they led the church. According to Scripture, Pastors are called by God and accountable to God to lead the dearest place on earth. To lead those that have been put in their care. To lead the bride of Christ and his body and his family and his temple. And the Bible describes that in various different ways. So 1 Timothy 5 verse 17, Paul says as follows. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. 1 Peter 5 verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, listen, exercising oversight. 1 Timothy 3 verses 4 to 5, An elder, which is interchangeable with pastor, an elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. Why? He tells us, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And see these overtones all the way through Scripture then, to rule, to manage, to exercise oversight. It's all talking about leadership. The pastors need to lead. They need to form a plurality and they need to lead for the glory of God. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 verse 8 that one, the one who leads must lead with zeal. And so the guy leading shouldn't be sad sack. You know what I'm saying? It's not talking about personality, but it is talking about the individual who's given to ruling, to overseeing, to managing. Well, let him do it with zeal. And let him lead for the glory of God. Pastors must lead. Now, I'll let you into a little secret from this Englishman. Leadership is a lot easier in English culture than Australian culture. Why is that? Because in English culture, we don't have the tall poppy syndrome. It doesn't exist. 
But in Australian culture, I remember somebody talking to me about it before I arrived. They're like, ooh, it's going to be tricky, tall poppy syndrome. You're like, tall poppies? Oh, that's something to do with the world war, isn't it? Yeah, those flowers that come up. Oh, what, I don't understand. What's, what's it got to do with my life? But then I was introduced to the tall poppy syndrome up close and personal. There's something in Australian culture that is genuinely suspicious of authority and leadership right off the bat. We don't have that in England. But it's alive and well here. And it's very important as a congregation, then, my friends, that we don't allow what is in our culture outside these walls to permeate beyond these walls. Why? Well, because God has ordained pastors to lead, and we shouldn't be suspicious of that. But more importantly, whether you're suspicious of that or not, that pastor will one day stand and give an account to the only one that ultimately really matters. And if he fears him, he must lead now. He must. Pastors will one day stand and give an account for how they've led, how they've ruled, how they've managed, how they've exercised oversight, and they must do it with zeal. But that's not all they must do because that's not all they were given account to. They were also given account, number two, for how they have nourished the church. How they fed the church. John chapter 21 verse 17. In some ways we have the first ordination ever in scripture. As Jesus himself, the saviour of the world, pulls Peter to one side and asks Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I do. Then Peter, feed my sheep. Peter's going to be the rock upon which the church is built. And every pastor there and after is commanded to do exactly the same, to feed God's sheep. Well, what do we feed them? Is it morning tea? That would be awkward because I can't cook. Although you would like my diet. You would be lucky people. And we'd be having a lot of lollies. But we're not called to feed food that goes in our mouths. We're called to feed food that goes into our hearts. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So inclusive, isn't it? Pastors have got to preach this word, to examine this word, because as they do, as they teach it, The man and woman of God will be equipped for every good work. They'll be completely complete in their lives. If they just pay attention to what's being said, they will be complete in their life. Or as Psalm 1 tells us, if they go on to meditate on the Scriptures day and night, they will be blessed. They will be supremely happy. They will prosper in all that they do. So many people can quote back to you 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All Scriptures God breathed. Everybody knows it. But here's what comes next. Whenever we're exegeting scripture, we must pay attention to what's come before, what's come after. Here's what comes straight after Paul telling that to that church. He says, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Isn't that powerful? It's all Scripture is God-breathed. It gives us all that we need. And so, Timothy, as a pastor, I charge you, both in season when you're doing great and out of season when you're not doing so great, preach the Word, Timothy. You're their pastor. Feed the sheep. Don't just share your opinions. Share with them God's Word, Timothy. Because it's all they need. That's what all pastors are called to do whether that be publicly on a platform like this, or whether it be privately in those one-on-one conversations that happen in different times. Pastors are called to preach the Word, in season and out of season. And this is starting with the main thing, starting with the glories of the Gospel, that which Paul told Timothy to never move on from, to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. Paul himself said, I, I've considered to, to give myself to nothing else among you except Christ and Him crucified. It is of first importance. So every pastor must fundamentally preach the gospel to people to help them see where the gospel fits into their lives and how it should be applied in their lives. Because the gospel is the main thing. The truth that God made us, that ultimately He designed us and He designed us for His glory. And yet the reality that we then turned away, we rejected him, we were not interested in him. We didn't want to bow our knee to his word, we wanted to do our own thing. And actually in our arrogance we sometimes wonder, who does he think he is calling me to do that? Well one day we'll stand before him and we'll know exactly who he is calling us to do that. He's the author of life, the maker of heaven and earth. The Bible's clear that where we have rejected him, And that day when we stand before him, he will then reject us for all eternity. And yet in his grace, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, on the greatest rescue mission ever told. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place and he made it possible that if we would put our faith in him, if we would trust our lives to him and take him as our saviour and indeed our king, that in that moment then our lives will be washed clean from our sin. When we stand before the Father on that day, it will be as if He sees us clothed in the righteousness of His Son. And so He won't say in that moment, then away from me. He will say, welcome home, Dave Taylor, because you're my son. I see you clothed in the righteousness of my son. Welcome home. That's the greatest message of the Bible. It is the message of the Bible. It's the message all the way through the Bible. And so a pastor is to brandish that gospel and never move on from the gospel and continue to preach the gospel. And then coming from the gospel, they're to preach the whole counsel of God. And one day they'll stand before God and they'll give an account for how they did that. Or whether they softened it because they were afraid of their congregation. Well, they changed it because they thought, oh, this just won't work in this culture, so we'll leave it out. Or whether they preached exactly what God told them. And John Calvin once said that we owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And so what pastors are called to do is preach God's words after him. He's already preached this. 
We're just re-preaching it. Retelling us what God says. Really doesn't matter what Dave Taylor thinks about lots of things. Unless he's telling us what God thinks about those things. And then we must bow the knee to that. Because he's the authority in our lives. Pastors will give an account for how they have led the church. They will also give an account for how they have nourished the church. Number three, they will also give an account for how they have equipped the church. See, according to Scripture, the pastor isn't just called to be a doer. I mean, I don't experience this in our church at all, okay? This is not my experience in this local church. But for many UK pastors, they could do with a lesson on, on this point of how you're called to equip the church because there's so many UK pastors that are doers. If you watch the Vicar of Dibley, that is what many pastors are like. They think that I should, I should preach, I should lead the singing, I should organise the choir, I should organise the church fate, and then I better get on my bike and go around all the members and have a cup of tea with them. Pastors tend to be doers. And there are things that they're called to do, but actually not many of those things. Now, in Scripture, a pastor is actually called to be an equipper, equipping the church so that each member may be positioned for his or her maximum fruitfulness in the church. And so in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, this is what it says. It says, And he gave the apostles, prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for work of ministry. Do you hear that? See, many times God gives us gifts, doesn't he, as members of the church so we can play our part. And yet for some people, God's actually given people as the gift. Pastors and teachers and evangelists. Why? To equip the saints for works of ministry. Not just to go and do everything because they're our hirelings. Now we pay them to equip us, to mobilize us, to help us, to help us see where we need to go next through their leadership, to help us see why through their nourishing of the word, and to help us see how as they equip us for the glory of God and mobilize us as a church and as a body and as a family for his glory. In a healthy local church, leaders equip and people minister. So I'm not a big fan of being called a minister because it's like, yeah, I'm more of an equipper. But my church is filled with people who minister. In a healthy church, leaders equip, people minister. Pastors will one day give an account for how they have equipped the church for their works of ministry. Number four. Anybody still want to be a pastor? Or is it just, okay, it's just Brendan. Okay, number four. They'll also give an account for how they've protected the church and how sobering this reality is. See, often in the Bible, a pastor is called a shepherd. A shepherd with a group of sheep following him. And as shepherds of God's people, pastors are called by God to protect the church from the many dangers and snares that come their way. Well, I've had the privilege of being a pastor now for 16 years and the truth is those dangers and snares can come in a whole variety of different ways on that congregation. The dangers and snares are relentless and they come in varied ways. 
I mean, firstly, they, the dangers and snares, they, they come from the evil one. I mean, people think that Satan is just this outdated concept and it doesn't matter. He's no big deal. But the Bible clearly says he is a big deal. He hates the brethren. He wants to rip apart the brethren. He wants to turn the brethren on one another. He is accuser of the brethren. He seeks to roam around like a roaring lion, seeing who he can devour. So what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, right at the end of his letter, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Listen, any pastor or preacher that says Satan has no relevance today, I want to take them to Paul's words that Paul clearly says, yes, he does. He does. He schemes against the church. And so what are pastors called to do? Well, they're called to preach the word and instruct their congregations to take up the whole armor of God. We don't live in peacetime, church. We live at war. When your alarm clock goes off in the morning and you just can't quite manage to get out of bed to read your Bible, part of the reason for that is because you think it's optional. Whereas that alarm clock is a call to war. It is a call to war when it goes off because Satan isn't going to be hanging about with you for the rest of the day. We're called to stand firm against the devil's schemes and the pastor is to remind us of that and to inform us as best he can about the devil's schemes where we are vulnerable. It's not the only place where the dangers and snares come from though the dangers and snares also come from the world. Hebrews chapter 11, as we saw last week, we're called pilgrims and strangers and aliens. We are citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. The Bible's clear that this isn't our home, but the world seeks to dazzle us day in, day out of our lives to say, yes, it is. You live in Sydney, right? You've got to live. So each and every day it seeks to woo us in. And pastors are called to get up and say, don't be wooed. This is not your home. If our lives as Christians make sense in Sydney, then they do not make sense in light of eternity. And they never will. We should be radically different in the way we live. And what we do with our time, what we do with our energy, what we think in our values, what we do with our finances. Non-Christians should come into our lives and see the details of our lives and go, What? Because this isn't our home. Heaven is our home. Our main problem in Sydney, Australia is not persecution from the world. It's seduction by the world. No one's being persecuted. We're all being seduced. Pastors have been given the responsibility by God to get up there and say, Church, are you aware? And then people look back at you sometimes and go, Man, it's a bit over the top. Just trying to help. Dangers and snares that come from the evil one. Dangers and snares that come from the world. And dangers and snares that come from within. 
That problem isn't just out there. It's, it's in here as well, isn't it? It's one of the things that the author of Hebrews takes great care to help us see. And so in Hebrews 12, verse 1, the author tries to help us see as a congregation the reality of indwelling sin. And so he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He knows that we're in the race of our lives. The cloud of witnesses are all looking on. God himself is at the end and we're called to run with all our might. But there is something that will slow us down, something that will cling to us. What is it? Our sin. And when we can't even see our sin, well, what he writes in Ephesians 3 then is already taking effect. Because quite clearly, not only is there a reality of indwelling sin, our sin deceives us. And so we read in Hebrews 3, verse 12 and 13, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you hear that? He's saying, listen, you better get together. And you better spend a lot of time talking to each other as long as it's called today. Why? Because sin is a reality. You're in the race of your life, but sin is a reality. Oh, and sin will deceive you. You won't even be able to see it's there. And in Hebrews 2, verse 1, he tells us the challenge of that, the the challenge on the church. In Hebrews 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard. Why? Why? Why must we pay close attention to what he's saying here? Well, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Why? Lest we drift away from it. People never drift towards godliness. They drift away from it. All the time. They constantly drift away. We all drift away. All the time. That's why the Hebrews writer, that's his, that's his fear, that's his concern. For 12 chapters, that's his concern. Run the race. Run the race. Jesus is amazing. Run the race. Don't don't forsake meeting together because you need each other. Sin will deceive you. It is there. Don't drift away as that sin deceives you. Keep standing together as long as it's called today. Keep stirring one another up to love and good deeds. And you know what Annie says in chapter 13? In chapter 13, he brings into sharp focus why we need pastors. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Obey them and submit to them. Why? Because they're called by God and ordained by God to protect you. To watch over your souls. To guard you against the devil's schemes. To guard you against culture. And to guard you on occasions even from yourself. And pastors will one day give an account for that. 
You know, this is one reason why as a pastoral team at Sovereign Grace, we encourage you to be here on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to keep encouraging you to be here on a Sunday morning. Because sin is deceitful. And it will seek to pull you away. But each and every week, I have the privilege to preach the gospel to you and to remind you, this is what it's about. And yet one of the sad, sad realities of being a pastor is you spot people stopping, coming, and then they start to feel disconnected. And then they start to feel that their relationship with Jesus is barely there. And then they text you to let you know they're going to find somewhere different. And you haven't spoken to them throughout because they've never asked. Pastors are called to get in the trench with the people and say, listen, this is the word of God. Live in light of this. This is how it will go well for you. Don't forsake meeting together. Keep coming. Keep being involved. This is why we will always prioritize a Sunday morning. It's why we'll always encourage you to be a part of a life group. Every member of Sovereign Grace Church is a part of a life group. That's deliberate. It's because we want you to be a part of a life group, because we want you to be cared for in that context. That's why as a pastoral team, our doors are always open to you. It's another thing I found very different about Australia. In Britain, people would call you up all the time and say, hey, listen, I've got this going on in my life. I've got to make this major decision. Can I chat to you? Because I'm aware in Scripture that, listen, you're keeping watch over my soul. I said, can I speak to you? Because in our marriage, we are just falling apart. And I need God's word. I need the Bible. I need your care. I need you to watch over my soul in this. Hey, listen, I'd love to. In Australia, most people go to counselors instead. I'm not against that. But they're not called by God to keep watch over your soul. They never have been. But pastors have been. And so don't hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying, therefore you should never go to a counselor. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, as a pastoral team, we are here to serve you and to watch over your souls. It's why we want to encourage you and disciple you and equip you and counsel you. It's why we meet every single week to pray for you, sometimes by name. Because we're called by God to protect you. And so by the grace of God, for the glory of God, while I have the privilege of being one of your pastors, I'm going to throw my body on the line for you on occasions. And whether you recognize I'm doing that or not, I'm cool with that. Because one day, my boss, God himself, is going to say to me, I believe, well done on that. Well done. You protected them in a way that you were called to. You were faithful. My friends, all pastors will give an account to God for how they have protected their flock. But that's not all. Number five, finally, they'll also give an account for how they have served the church. So when pastors are doing what they're called to by God and doing a good job, they are going to be unapologetically leading. When they're doing what they're called by God to do, they're going to be leading, they're going to be nourishing, they're going to be equipping, they're going to be protecting. They are going to be acting out a position of authority and they must because that is what they've been called by God to do. And yet their tone in the way they do it 
is equally as important. The how they go about doing it is equally as important and they'll give an account to God for that. That's why in 1 Peter 5 we read as follows. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He knows if you're doing a good job, if you're leading and nourishing and protecting, there's always a danger that you could lord it over people. So don't do that. Do not lord it over people. Do not domineer people over your charge. But what must you do? You must be an example to the flock. Well, well, what example? Well, the Mark chapter 10 verse 43 example. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a pastor, they're called to lead and nourish and equip and protect, but they're to do it all in the image of Christ. Not domineering over people, but just trying their best to serve them. Just like Jesus did. Whatever came Jesus' way, he just kept going, didn't he? And pastors are called to do the same. Keep loving them. Keep caring for them. Keep serving them. You know, one of the things that's always impressed me about Brendan, I remember when I first encountered him about seven and a half, maybe even eight years ago now. And when we first started the church, we took everybody through starting point. And Brendan was still at Moore Bible College and he was doing well at the college. And on his membership form, under that line where it says, are there any areas that you'd like to be interested to be serving in? Remember that one? You've all put it. He just wrote, I'll do anything you want. I love that about him. Because what we did was we got him to do whatever we wanted. <laughs> so we're like, okay, you're at more Bible college. That's great. Well, this week we are going to lay out the chairs. And then, Brendan, we haven't got any family here. Is there any chance you could babysit for us sometimes? And, and each and every time I encountered Brendan over months and months and then years, he was just happy to serve and whatever. Because he loved the church. He loved the bride. For him, it's not about him. It's about Jesus. I said, just let me at him. I'll do whatever you want. We are always looking for that in pastors. We're not looking for guys. that I've met guys that have a great preaching gift and their life sucks. And they're not a servant. You will never have one of those guys, I trust by God's grace, in this pulpit. Because I don't invite those guys in. In all the qualifications for a pastor, there's one to do with teaching. All the others are to do with his character. It's a character profession. Because you are precious. You're the family of God. You're the bride of Christ. People that he died for. 
And so when we ordain a guy, we take our time. Because we want to make sure they are servants first. And then leaders and nourishers and equippers second. Brendan is that. And one day all pastors will give an account to God for that. And so just quickly then before we ordain Brendan, how then should we respond to our pastors? do this briefly, but I think it's important because the undeniable emphasis of Hebrews chapter 3 verse 17 is on the response of the church to their pastors, isn't it? If you pay careful attention, it instructs that the pastor will have to give an account, but all the emphasis of the verse is on how we are then to respond to them. And so for 12 chapters of the, the book of Hebrews, we've had the glories of Christ We've had the importance of running the race, on persevering, of ensuring that we don't drift. And then in Hebrews chapter 13, one short applicational conclusionary chapter, he mentions the important role of pastors three times. Verse 7, verse 17, and verse 24. And each time it mentions it, he doesn't just mention the role, he mentions how we are to respond to them. For the good of the church, the glory of God, enjoying what they've been called by God to do. And he explains how we are called then to respond to that pastor. And the reason for that emphasis, my friend, is because the reality is this. The effectiveness of pastoral leadership is always dependent upon a proper response to pastoral leadership. Let me say that again. The effectiveness of pastoral leadership is always dependent, it is completely dependent upon a proper response to pastoral leadership. You could have Jesus leading you. You haven't. Don't think I needed to say that. My wife found that particularly funny. You could have Jesus leading you. But if the congregation doesn't respond, his leadership is ineffective. Pastoral leadership and its effectiveness is dependent upon a proper response to pastoral leadership. So how do we respond? Three things. Number one, we respond with faith-filled submission. Let's look at the verse again. This is culturally challenging, is it not? (laughs) It's exciting. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those will have to give an account. What is it talking about there? Obey them. Submit to them. Well, it's not talking about some type of blind obedience or passive compliance. It's not talking about, well, my pastor told me to jump, so I just, I just jumped. I have no idea why. It's not talking about that. That would be blind obedience or passive compliance. Good leadership takes people's questions. Good leadership wants to know what people think. But good leadership is leadership. And what he's talking about here then is obey your leaders, submit to them in this sense. Be faith-filled in your disposition to follow them. Have a disposition to follow these men as men who have been set apart by God and who are going to give themselves to lead you and nourish you and protect you and equip you and serve you. Have a disposition to follow them. Don't question everything they do. Don't look at them every time they make a decision with suspicion. Why are they doing that? 
You know what that causes? That causes they will do this with no joy and with groaning and that would be of no advantage to you. So have a disposition to follow them. Jeff Perswell once again says it this way. He says submission here does not mean passivity, a blind obedience. Rather, submission is an expression of faith towards God. That he has appointed leaders for us and he will use them for our good. It recognizes the critical role that leadership plays in bringing about God's purposes in the church and in the lives of believers. And so fundamentally, submission is an attitude, a disposition to affirm and support the leadership of the church and to increase its effectiveness through joyful and faith-filled participation. You know, the church is the dearest place on earth to me. The church is also the happiest place on earth to me. And part of the reason for that is because I've been on the receiving end of you doing this towards me for the last six and a half years. You have followed me. You do follow me. So I serve with joy and not with groaning. And as Brendan now comes into ordained ministry, I want you to do the same to him. Because we must, for God's glory and for the health of the church, as he joins me as that team, we must be dispositioned to follow him as well. That's not all. How should we respond to our pastors? Well, with faithful submission, number two, with God-honoring appreciation, this is so difficult to preach. It can appear self-serving. I'm just trying to do my job, okay? On Timothy 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. My friends, we're called to esteem pastors very highly. Now listen, make no mistake, we're not talking there about idling your pastors. There is one hero of Sovereign Grace Church, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who has died for you. He's the only one who is committed to you every day, 24 hours a day. He's the only one who is ultimately the good shepherd of us all. And yet as pastors serve under them, we're called to esteem them and respect them and honor them. Why? For your good and for the Father's glory. And number three, we, resp- we respond to our pastors with faith-fueled prayer. Now once again, my spiritual hero, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, many years ago, he would take people around the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and he would show them around. And this church was incredibly successful. Thousands and thousands of people came to the church. Thousands and thousands of people got saved in a time in England when not many people were getting saved. And when people visited the church, there was a church room, it's a huge room, and underneath the church was a basement. And Mr. Spurgeon would always take his guests and his visitors around the Metropolitan Tabernacle and he would leave the basement till the end. 
And he would take them with a smile on his face to the basement and he would open the door and he would say, and this is the secret of why God is blessing us. And he would open the basement door and whenever he was there, from morning through to late at night, this room would be filled with the congregation praying for their pastor, praying for the church, praying for the city, praying for the country. So every time Mr. Spurgeon would say, this is my engine room. This is where it all goes on. This is where Metropolitan Tabernacle is fueled for the glory of God. And then he said to many of them, no man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. Well, my friends, given all that pastors then are called to, in leading, in nourishing, in equipping, in protecting, and serving, please pray for us. Because we need it. We're just like you. We need encouragement. We need help. We need prayers. We're no different from anybody else. And so we need you. And I think it would be appropriate for us now to ordain Brendan and indeed pray for him, don't you think? So let's welcome him as he comes up. Well, do you want to say something? Yeah. Um. (laughs) Just submitting to a pastor. (laughs) No, uh, I first um, met with a group of people who were opening praying to plant this church just after Christmas. It was Boxing Day 'll and brother we are we are proud of you now I got to know this guy about eight years ago he called me from i don't even know where you were just a long way away yeah which I never heard of and people get saying where's he living I'm like I don't know 
just a distant land somewhere strange. I don't know. But what was clear immediately is this guy loved the Lord and he loves his word. And as I got to know him, he was clearly not only a guy gifted for this task, he was a guy of character for this task. And here's the way I go about it as, as your lead pastor. I would never want to lay hands on a pastor that if I died, I would not want leading my family in my absence. Well, if I died, follow this guy. Listen to him. He will care for you. And outside of my family, you are the people in the world that I love the most. So I'm proud of you. Thank you for applying yourself to God's word. Thank you for watching your life and your doctrine closely. And to think that it is you that God ordained before there was time to be the first sovereign grace church pastor in Australia beside me. The first ordained one. I was ordained on the northern hemisphere. He's actually the first guy being ordained in the southern hemisphere. It's quite an accolade. Everybody else will always know I was number two. I was number three. It doesn't matter. First. I mean, I'd, I'd get a t-shirt done for that. Just for the conference. Number one, Southern Hemisphere. Thank you. No, don't do that because then you'll be proud and we'd have to fire you. That would be a problem. Don't do that. Okay, the way this works, we do this the same across the globe um, in Southern Grace churches. There's 10 questions I asked Brendan. They are serious questions of what he's promising to do towards us as a congregation. I then ask you four questions that I'm asking you to promise in return. Then I'm going to lay hands on Brendan. It would be all the elders, but it appear that I'm the only elder present. I'm actually the only elder in the Southern Hemisphere, so I'm the only one that's going to be laying hands on Brendan, and then the whole core team are going to come up, and we want to pray for Brendan and Charlotte. All right? All right, ten questions then to you, Brendan. And let, us, let us attend to these soberly. Do you promise to shepherd the flock of God, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock? I do. Do you promise to faithfully guard the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer? And do you promise to protect that flock from false teaching, division, and dissension? I do. Do you promise to care for the flock of God, not as a hireling, but as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, caring for his sheep as the precious ones for whom he died? I do. Do you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and this congregation, promise to preach the word in season and out of season? And do you promise to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience, enduring suffering, while remaining sober-minded in all of your preaching and teaching? And will you do the work of an evangelist among those whom God has given you charge? I do. You declare sincerely before God that you believe all the articles and points of doctrine contained in the Sovereign Grace Statement of Faith fully agree with all Scripture. Do you own that statement as the statement and confession of your faith? And do you promise to teach and defend these doctrines in public and private? I do. You promise further that if in the future you come to have reservations about any of these doctrines, you will share these reservations with your eldership and the regional assembly of elders. I 
Do you promise to keep a close watch on yourself and to walk humbly before others, to be self-suspicious of your own motives, to invite criticism from others, and to make yourself accountable to those whom God has put you in your life? I do. Do you submit without exception to the explicitly mandated practices of the Sovereign Grace Book of Church Order, affirming that that, form, that, that that form of government is a wise and suitable application of scriptural principles? I do. Do you promise to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to show yourself in all respects, in action and in speech, to be a model of good works, integrity, and dignity so that neither the church nor our saviour Jesus Christ nor the gospel may be brought into reproach. I do. And finally, do you promise to continually seek the gifts of the Spirit that you might serve God's people not in the energy of the flesh but in the power of the Holy Spirit and to carry out your ministry without fear of man? I do. Well done. Let's stand together. There's now four questions that we're asking you in response, which you respond with, we do. Do you, the people of Sovereign Grace Church Sydney, receive Brendan Willis as your pastor? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from him with meekness and love and to submit to him in the due biblical exercise of his leadership? Do you promise to supply him with whatever material support he may need to fulfill his ministry among you wherever possible? Do you promise to encourage him in his labours and to assist his ministry and leadership for your spiritual edification, the evangelization of the lost, and the promotion of God's glory? All right, let's pray for him. I'm going to pray for him, and then if the core team will come up, that we need to. Well, Lord, you saw this day coming before there was even time. And Lord, I remember eight years ago walking around my office in Wales imagining the church in Sydney and praying for future leaders. And you fancied it. Lord, you are so faithful to us. And for the church that I love the most in all the world, Lord, I thank you that you care for us by raising leaders for us. And Lord, as I now lay hands on Brendan and I charge him to preach the word in season and out of season, Lord, did you help him now before you to lead, to nourish, to equip, to protect and serve Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney? And Lord, would he do it without the fear of man? Would he do it in the fear of you? Lord, would this young man, would he pastor for the audience of one? And when we see him going forward to you on that last day, Lord, would he hear us as a church clapping and cheering, saying that? was one of my pastors. So Lord, equip him, give him grace, protect him, and would he use his gifts and abilities for your glory through being a pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. Amen. 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 If the core team could come out now as well.